Well, good morning and uh, special welcome to everybody. I guess those that are joining us at Crossroads in Highland Park in the 01 and thanks to all the veterans for their service and those who are serving uh, even today. I, I want to uh, open by giving you a little assignment uh, later today or perhaps when you're sitting with a good friend in the next week or two. I, I want to encourage you to reflect on the 10 best meals you've ever had. The 10 most memorable meals. Now, I'm going to use the word memorable in a positive sense. I had a consulting assignment years ago in Japan, and uh, at a sushi bar in Tokyo, I ate a piece of raw horse, and that was memorable. Not for good reasons. Uh, I'm talking about delightful. I'm talking about a great setting and great food and good friends and wonderful conversation that goes on for, for hours and hours. Perhaps it's a birthday party, or maybe it's a graduation party, or it's a wedding banquet. Uh, I, I, wanna, I want us to reflect on that because uh, it, it happens to show up a lot in Scripture. Um, one of the things that I was most concerned about in the, in the days and weeks following my stroke, when I didn't know what kind of recovery I might have, was that I might not be able to go out to dinner again with friends. And I was quite agitated by this, and this surprised me a bit, but I remember saying to Sherry, why didn't I appreciate just the ability to walk into a restaurant with friends and sit down and have a meal? And it was surprising because I didn't realize how much I valued that until I thought that I might not be able to do that again. And uh, as it turns out, there's, there's good reasons for us to think that way. Uh, in the Bible, hundreds of times, uh, God directs us to think about festivals and feasts and banquets. And as a matter of fact, it's one of the more popular metaphors for heaven. Uh, which is how, in my study this week, led me to uh, think about meals. Sherry and I had this conversation, and after we talked about it for a while, she reflected. Um, apparently, uh, given all the references to food and banquets and how much heaven is described as a big feast, apparently God is a foodie. Uh, I had not thought about that in the past, but uh, it does come up a lot. And I think that uh, we could agree, whoever's in charge of marketing for heaven has done a bad job and probably should be replaced because we don't think about it much and to the extent that we think about it, it sounds like the kind of place that maybe we drive 10 minutes out of our way to go visit for 30 minutes, but we don't want to get trapped there for very long. Um, And yet what scripture talks about is so powerful. I mean, right now we've got candidates making all kinds of promises that quite honestly, they're probably not going to be able to fulfill. But even if they can, they're, uh, they're small change, right? Lower the taxes a little bit here, or start this new program. Even the most massive changes that they might introduce is really nothing compared to the kind of dramatic difference that Jesus promises with the kingdom of God. It's a place that is so amazing that our language breaks down in its ability to describe it. And the writer says things like, the streets are pure gold. That is clear as glass, right? Which is sort of nonsensical because gold isn't clear, but it's, it's, it's the effort of a writer to describe something that he's seen that he can't describe. 
And we come away with a place that is, that is full of joy and it is safe and it's wonderful and it's glorious and there's lots of music and there's lots of food. And this idea of food is going to come up as we look uh, at this parable of the great banquet that Jesus describes in Luke 14. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And as you're doing that, let me just say that uh, we spoke, uh, I sort of framed parables last week. Luke is big in parables. Matthew and Mark uh, have some parables, not as many as Luke. John doesn't have any parables. Luke is big in parables, and Luke chapter 14 and 15 are, are the big parables, some of the most famous of all. And I said last week, uh, as we were getting started, I said, look, the parables are not illustrations. They're not little morality lessons for us. They're not, not anything like Aesop's fables. They are instead uh, invitations to step into another world and to look around in this setting that we can relate to so that we can see things that we might otherwise not be able to see or understand, especially things about ourselves. I went on to say uh, that the parables are used by Jesus when a straight statement of fact or truth probably is going to break down and not have the energy and the passion and the color and the texture that we need to grasp what's going on. Uh, a third point I made was that in order to understand the parables, we really have to do our homework. Many people don't, and so they misunderstand the context and what's actually being said. And then I said the parables of Jesus are unique in that they are about the kingdom of God. They're telling us about things that are going to happen, real spiritual truth. And also, they're unique in that Jesus used them both to make things clear for some people and to hide ideas and truth from others. So, with all that as a backdrop, let's, um, let's turn again to uh, the parable of the great banquet. And we're going to join this. Uh, we're joining this dinner party that Jesus has been invited to that uh, <laughs> it will be very memorable. Everybody that's there is going to remember this, this party. Not because it was the great steak, right, the best food I ever had, but because Jesus is turning everything upside down. He was invited in by the Pharisees. It was a trap. They wanted him to heal somebody on the Sabbath so they could uh, denounce him as, as a violator of God's laws. He saw all this. He knew what was going on. He does heal the man because Jesus heals people that are suffering. But uh, even as he does it, he's careful not to violate any of God's laws. He just sort of flies in the face of the, of the Pharisaical laws. He points out how hypocritical these guys are. And then, uh, at that point, he pivots and he, and he mocks them for fighting over the best seat at the banquet. And then he turns his uh, attention to the host and he says, this is really a lame party. You invited all the wrong people. Where are the single moms? Where's the boy in the wheelchair? Where are the poor people? Where are the people that I want to hang out with? And, uh, and what we see now is that remarkably, he's not done. Uh, he has more things to say, more uh, attacks to make. And so we pick up reading here, verse 15. Um, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So there's a couple things going on here that we've got to understand. Th- these dinners are not uncommon. So when a, a rabbi would travel into an area 
the, the village elders would want to, to get together with, with him and, and sort of grill him, right? Sound him out. Confirm that he's one of us. And, uh, and probably probe him for news because, you know, you don't have a... They didn't have a Twitter feed. They can't go to Google News. They don't know what's going on in the next village. So these kind of, uh, these kind of gatherings are not uncommon. Additionally, the question that this guy asks or the statement that this guy makes would have been a pretty common statement that had a very expected response. So he says, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, in order to appreciate what's going on here, uh, you have to understand what Isaiah said 700 years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 25, so Isaiah is a big prophet, one of the major prophets, and 700 years earlier, he had said this, um, 25 verse 6, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. So, Isaiah is looking ahead into the future. He's talking about the sort of the end of the age, this great messianic banquet when everything is coming together, when the kingdom of God is coming together. And he describes it, right, as this wonderful banquet. The Lord Almighty will come to this mountain. He's talking about Jerusalem. And he's going to prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, da, da, da. He's going to wipe out death. Everything's going to be great. So here's the problem. Right, Isaiah in this chapter says he's going to prepare this feast for all people. Uh, or the Jews do not like that. Right, they they have this understanding that this is that they are God's chosen people. They're the only ones, and that others are not going to be invited to this banquet. So during the seven hundred years between the time that Isaiah wrote this and the time that that this is being stated our passage today. A number of things happened. One of which is that um, the Jews re- rewrote this passage. Okay, so remember uh, at the end of the Old Testament what's happened is that uh, the Jews have, have gone into exile. So the, the northern ten tribes of Israel are captured by the Assyrians 722 BC. They're wiped out. We don't hear from them again. The, the southern two and a half tribes called Judah are taken into exile for 70 years into Babylon. This is the book of Daniel. And so you've got this whole period where they're there. And then, then they come out just before the end of the Old Testament. So these are the books of Nehemiah. Let's rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, and Esther and other books. So the Old Testament ends shortly after that. But the Jews had been in in Babylon for 70 years. During that time, they're forced to speak a different language. They learn uh, Aramaic. So when they come back after Babylon falls to the Persians, they're allowed to come back to Jerusalem um, and they reestablish things. But they don't speak Hebrew. So the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is translated into Aramaic. It's called the Talmud. And in the, the translation of Isaiah 25, 6, um, they add a couple 
lines. They say, yeah, in that last day, everything's going to be great, great big feast. People from all the nations are going to be gathered for this great wine and the wonderful meats that God is going to prepare. And then he's going to slay them all, except us. Okay? So they just added a little bit to this passage. Uh, and, and we see this also in the book of Enoch. We see this also in the writings of the Essenes. They're the, they're the group that went out into the desert. They gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everybody sort of has this idea that this banquet is going to be very different than the way it's described in Isaiah chapter 25. So what was common? Jesus has been disruptive. He said some really uh, harsh things about the Pharisees. And so what this guy is doing is giving Jesus a little opportunity to to make right. So he says, um, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And the expectation is that Jesus is going to say, oh, that we might all keep the law in such a precise fashion that when that great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah at his banquet. Okay. So they're, they're giving him a chance to say, Right, I'm with you, I'm, I'm going with the, the new understanding of this banquet. So one of the things, by the way, just as a, a little in the margin, one of the things that we see is that this idea of a festival, of a feast, of a banquet, is a big theme to the Jews. And this is part of the reason why Christ's first miracle is to turn water into wine at a wedding feast. Right? You might have wondered about that, like, Wow, Jesus, that was a little uh, odd, maybe lame, frivolous. I mean, your first miracle, you turn water into wine at a party. Like, why don't you, you know, why don't you expand the church or, or, or do something like worthy, right? Something good. Well, Jesus is sort of announcing, I'm, I, I'm, I'm the Lord of the feast, right? I'm the one that makes the best party. Because this is part of the understanding of the Messiah when he comes, Right? Things are going to get better. It's going to be a party. The kingdom of God is a party. So that's part of what Jesus is advertising when he does this first miracle. And this idea of a banquet is a big theme. And so when this guy says, uh, when this guy says, blessed are those who who will eat at this feast in the kingdom of God, they're all expecting Jesus to say, right, and the people that will be at that feast, may, may we make it to the feast, may we be so righteous and so zealous and so worthy of keeping the Jewish law that we get in because nobody else is going to get in. And by the way, they didn't think anybody that was sick, they didn't think anybody that was paralyzed, they didn't think anybody that was blind, they didn't think any of those people were going to make it. Right? So that's the context in which this statement is made. So this guy tees this up for Jesus. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it, it's a nice slow pitch across the plate. Okay, Jesus, you know what to do. You know what to say, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he tells a story. He tells a parable. And this parable is going to make it clear that not only are other people going to be at the banquet, right? Not only are the the blind, the crippled, right? Are all those, the poor people that the Pharisees are not spending any time with, the tax collectors and prostitutes, not only are they going to be there, And not only are the Gentiles going to be there, but he's pretty sure that the Pharisees are not going to be there. Jesus tells this story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. 
At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So there's sort of two invitations to a party back then. Same thing holds for us today. You invite somebody to come over uh, for dinner on Friday night. You call them, hey, let's have dinner Friday night, seven o'clock. Great. So they show up Friday night at seven o'clock and they're sitting in the living room or they're out on the back deck because you're, you're grilling and there's but 7.20, 7.30, somebody steps up and says, okay, dinner is now served. Right? So it's now it's time to actually sit down at the table. You get the first invitation came days earlier. Now there's an actual, it's time to sit down at the table. So there's these two invitations. In the, in the first century, uh, this happened this way also, but it was a bigger deal because you couldn't just go to Costco and buy the jumbo box of, you know, whatever, steaks or burgers and have everything just sort of unfold. You figure out how many people are going to be at this banquet. This isn't just a dinner. This is a banquet. So lots of food. So you figure out how many people are coming, and then you got to go, you know, kill the goats or the fatted calf, or you got to you got to go to all this work to prepare all this food. So there's been an initial RSVP. People have said, "Yes, I'm coming," and then uh, they send out the servants to say, "Okay." It's time to actually show up at our house because the food is ready. Come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Okay. Now this seems uh, perhaps modestly reasonable today. We can imagine a scenario in which uh, we've been working on some purchase and the attorney calls and says, hey, guess what? You've got to sign the contract tonight. Uh, it's only, the offer only extended till midnight tonight. You've got to sign it. We've got to get it notarized. This all has to happen right now. Okay? So we could imagine a scenario in which it makes sense between the first <laughs> RSVP and sit down for the meal where suddenly you go, uh-oh, something's come up and I've got to leave. This doesn't make any sense in their culture. Right? For a variety of reasons. First of all, he's talking about buying farmland. There's not much land in Israel. Israel's a small country. And there's very little land that you can actually farm. Okay, and these people grew up there. They know the land. They they didn't get transferred in from L.A. or Boston. Right? They grew up there. They've known that farm their entire life. And furthermore, negotiations to buy land took months, if not years, Right? Because it's, it's all about a big family, right? You're not just doing this on your own, just you and an attorney and one other party working on a price. It's your family. Your cousin Vinny gets a vote. Everybody's involved in these negotiations. They go on forever and ever and ever. Right? This is one of the reasons why the parable of the prodigal son is so scandalous to a first century Jew. Because the younger son right, says, to his, says to his father, I want my inheritance, which is unthinkable. It means drop dead. I'd rather you died so I could get this money now. But then it says, he immediately sells the land. Okay, there's no immediately selling land for a good price in that culture. If you're immediately selling, you're giving it away, right? So this is just, you take the family fortune and you've squandered it. We saw the similar thing 
when we were in, uh, when I was in Ghana with Lee, one of the elders of the church. So a couple weeks ago, we were in Ghana looking at the IN, international needs work. And so we've been investing several hundred thousand dollars in these projects over the last few years. And, and the, the way international needs works, it's, it's, this is taking place in Ghana, which is a which is a West African country. It's on the east side of the West African country. There's a region, and one of the things that's been happening in this region is uh, a really ugly, unthinkable practice of of, uh, in which which witch doctors are uh, stealing, uh, demanding young girls as payment to the gods for something bad that's happened. And these girls become, of course, slaves and sexual slaves to these witch doctors for their whole life. It, the practice is called Tricosi, and so International Needs has identified these villages where this practice is going on, and they go in and they, they set up a church, and then as soon as they get a little beachhead, they begin to, to bring in you know, clean water and introduce sanitation and teach people how to read. And then the process goes on until they build a school and, and try to just help educate people so that this process of Tricosi stops. So on this trip, we were looking at these um, villages sort of across the spectrum. So we looked at villages that didn't have any work being done, but were sort of ready for an international needs team to go in and start planning a church. And then we looked at those where this had happened and there's a, a, a church that's been, been started and some things are happening. We went to Cuve where we've made investments over the last few years and there's, you know, running water and there's a school. We built, you know, this junior high, there's 350 students there and there's sanitation and there's a kitchen and there's a church and there's all these things going on. And then we also saw some villages where this work had happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you see the sort of transformative difference it would make. So we were visiting all these villages, and here's what happens when you go in to visit one of the villages. You have to sit with the elders, (laughs) which is essentially anybody, best I could tell, anybody over the age of 25, and uh, you sit around a little fire, and uh, I don't speak Eve, the language there. So there's a, 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 an interpreter for us, and the interpreter is one of the IN staff guys, and uh, we sit down, and he's having a conversation in, in this tribal language, and it goes on for 10 minutes, and then he turns. He would turn and look at me and, and Lee, and he'd say, I know, <laughs> this is just driving you guys crazy, because you're Americans, and you want to get this done, right? Come on, let's go. What, what, are, you, what are we talking about? He says, I, I, I've, I've talked to the chief. I've asked him how he's doing. I've asked him about his day. I've asked him about his family. I've asked him about the health of his kids. He goes, I need to ask him about his goats next. He goes, this is going to take a while. Just sit tight. But this is the way this happens, right? You don't just do a deal. It's all in the context of a big community and a relationship. So that's what's happening here, right? Big communal relationship. And so this excuse is clearly going to come across as an excuse. So um, the first said, I just bought a field and I must go to see it. Please excuse me. So he's come to your house, right? You got the steak on the grill. You're getting ready to sit down. And all of a sudden he goes, you know what? I got to go, go do this thing. And when he tells you about it, you're like, what are you talking about? You don't have to do that right now. What's going on? 
Then a second one. I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Okay? Well, (laughs) so oxen were a big investment, and uh, they were complicated animals. They had, to, they had to get them in teams. The teams had to work together. They had to tire at the same rate. You would never buy five oxen without seeing them first, right? This, is, this isn't going to happen. And, uh, and even if you had bought them, you don't have to go test, test them out right then. It's dinner time. What are you talking about? You got to go out. It'd be like, you know, you invite me to your house. I come over and, you know, and, and again, the, 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 the meat is, is grilling. And just as we're sitting down, I go, you know what? I, I bought a truck uh, today. I, I need to go test drive it. And I walk out the door. I'm like, what, what, what's going on here? This is, this is intended very clearly as an insult. Okay? And trust me, I know <laughs> what this feels like. Uh, in college, I'd asked a girl out, and uh, it was for a fraternity event a couple weeks away. And she said, oh, you know, I'd like to go, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll get back to you in the next couple days. So the next night, I'm with some fraternity brothers. We go to a, there's a campus, there's a, a play. One of our fraternity brothers is in the play. We're all going. So I'm there with a half dozen fraternity brothers. We walk in, and there is this girl and some of her friends, and they're all, we, so we end up, before the play, we end up in this big conversation where we're all, there's like 10, 15 of us, and we're all having one conversation, at which point she interrupts and she says, Mike, you know what, I wanted to get back to you, you invited me out to this event, I've decided that on that night, uh, I can't go because I need to go shop for a battery for my car. There's... There's a little nervous laughter that goes on. And then one of my fraternity brothers said, ouch. (laughs) Right? Like, this was intended to hurt and to embarrass me. Right? She doesn't say, I can't go. I'm sorry. She doesn't tell me privately. She's in a public setting. She says, I can't go to that event two weeks from now because I'm going to use that night to go shop for a battery for my car. I heard this. For years, guys would say to me, I can't go to the chapter meeting because I'm shopping for a battery for my car that night, right? So this is intended as a snub against, uh, against the host. And then still another, uh, verse 20, still another said, I just got married and, and so I can't come. Oh, really? So two days ago you said you were coming. But now you've just discovered that you got married. You forgot you were going to get married in the, in the 48 hours between when you said you were coming and, and now. Right? These are designed to insult the person. So, the, so it says here, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Because, okay, he sees a trend. I'm going to invite these people back. And they're all saying no. And it's getting ugly. Their excuses are, are less and less plausible. And so, uh, and so he wonders, what is my master going to do, right? This is a culture of, of honor. Uh, his master's being shamed. So you could imagine that, uh, the, that the message is going to be, you know, you go back and tell them, right, you know, I know where they live. You better tell them they better watch their back. You tell them that, you know, two can shop for car batteries. Whatever you're going to say, go back and, and issue a little threat, But instead, in the story that Jesus is telling, something very different 
happens. The owner of the house became angry, then ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the servant does that, and he comes back. Sir, what you have ordered has been done. There is still room. Okay. So, verse 23, the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So if you dig into the Greek here, you see that the first pass, those that, it, it implies these are Jews that are part of the village that are poor and sick and lame. And then when he goes out uh, to these roads and country lanes, he's going further out. So these are, these are, the expectation here is that these are the Gentiles that aren't coming into the villages. They're just sort of passing through the area. Um, so that my house will be full. And then he says, I tell you. So this is, sort of, uh, this is sort of the parable is done now. And then Jesus says to them, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Right? So, <laughs> so Jesus is at this party. Right? He's been disruptive. And the, he's been given this opportunity to sort of check the box and say, yes, may we all be invited. May we, may the elite, may those of us who are religious, may those of us who, are, who look and act like we are, may we excel to such an extent that we still are found worthy of this invitation. And Jesus doesn't do that. He tells a story in which, uh, and there's a little, Jesus doesn't interpret this parable. Some of the parables he'll interpret for us so we know exactly what it means. But he tells a story in which a few things jump off the page. The first one, and the most obvious, is that he's saying uh, to these to these Pharisees, um, "You know what? You got invited to the party, to God's banquet. You got invited. You are SVP'd. But your lives, your attitude, your posture is a lame excuse of a life, and." Uh, you're not, you're not even willing to come to my banquet. I'm the king. This is about me. I'm the Messiah, right? The kingdom of God is before you. The kingdom of God is at hand. You were warned by John the Baptist that it was near. Here I've been for two and a half years. I've been living among you, walking, teaching, loving, doing miracles. You're, you're turning your back on me. So God is moving forward. We're going to invite other people, and uh, you're not coming to the banquet. Right. So that's, those are fighting words. Remember I said the parables are not, not nice little children's stories told by Mr. Rogers? Because nobody wants to kill Mr. Rogers after he tells a cute little story that has a nice moral uh, on the end of it. But there, these are fighting words that Jesus is giving to them. So we see, and this is, it's a big theological concept and it's complicated and I'm not going to go into it. I'm not able to go into it or to try and... Uh, try and explain the different ways over the last 2,000 years we've, we've tried to understand the relationship of, of the Jewish people, God's people, to what moves forward. But there's two other things that are clear. The first is we see again, 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 over and over and over in the voices of the prophets, over and over and over in the life of Jesus, we see his concern for those that are pushed out, those that are overlooked. Right? Those that are oppressed, those that are beaten down, 
right? These are the people. Again, where are, the, where are the single moms? Where's the boy in the wheelchair? Where are the poor people? Jesus has a heart for these people who are suffering. And we see this call uh, to those of us who, uh, who are of means and ability to try and help. We see this, this mandate to help and to be involved. And then third, I think we also see that uh, the excuses that we offer will be exposed for what they are, right? Excuses. And pretty lame ones at that once we sort of unfold this. Now, I complain about this from time to time. I I probably shouldn't, but I want to, I I complain in order to make a point. One of the most challenging parts of my job is to hold in tension these two big ideas. The one idea is the kingdom of God is a party and the invitation is open to everybody, right? So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, right? God will meet you where you are. This isn't about cleaning up your life so that you're going to be good enough so that God will love you. No, you never will. You never will. I promise you, you cannot. But God will meet you where you are. God will meet you where you are. You don't, you, you don't have to do anything other than have a posture very different than the Pharisees and be humble, right? and, and, and look uh, for that invitation and respond to it, and extend that invitation to others, right? There's, there's very little, it's, it's all about God's grace and his love. So that's one big idea. The second big idea is after we respond to God's grace, then it's just expected we're going to be serious about it, Right? Now, we're not being serious about it so that God will love us. God loves us because of who God is. But these are big, important things. And and we can't then get on a religious high horse and be self-righteous, right? That posture is always the wrong attitude. And so it's with great humility. Please understand, one of the challenges of reading the parables about the Pharisees and to see how wrong they are, is to not become a Pharisee about the Pharisees. To not say, those Pharisees, they were idiots. I'm so much better than they are, right? No, I think that means you're exactly like they are. And that's our, that's our approach to this. So we have to see how deep it resides within us and be humble as we lean into the invitation that we get from God to the party that he's going to throw. And we invite other people to the party that he is going to throw. And we're serious about the call that he has extended. Let me pray for us. Lord God, it is so so easy to be uh, a Pharisee about the Pharisees It's so easy to just continue to think that your love is somehow uh, contingent upon my worthiness, doing the right thing. Look at me. I went to church. Look at me. I'm trying hard. As opposed to just recognize what an unthinkable thing it is that uh, I would get an invitation to the banquet, uh, as disqualified as I am. Help us to hold on to that wonder and that uh, amazement. And help us to extend that offer to others 
especially those that are beaten down and oppressed, uh, especially those that are pushed aside. Help us be, uh, help us be faithful as we try to live in the, in the glory of that grace and look forward with great anticipation to the party that you will throw. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.